Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to Redeeming Disorder. And Laura and I are both traveling this week, so I've got a quick intro here for you. And this week we're interviewing Suzanne Stabile. And this picks up from last week where we talked to Ian Cron, because Suzanne co-authored The Road Back to You with Ian and has done a lot more work on the Enneagram on her own. She's an Enneagram master teacher, and she's also a speaker. She's a retreat leader. She's a woman of many talents, but she's done a lot of work on the Enneagram and the oral tradition of the Enneagram and in helping people discover more about themselves and their personalities through it. And she has a unique perspective through all that work on how personality can segue into disorder and how we can learn about ourselves from our personality and thus learn about our relationship to disorder or potential disorder. So it's a thought-provoking conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, where we delve into the world of mental disorder. To overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. to have Suzanne Stabile, an Enneagram master teacher and speaker. She co-hosts a podcast called The Road Back to You about the Enneagram, which is also the title of her book about the Enneagram, co-written with Ian Crone. But Suzanne, thank you for taking the time out of your very busy day to share your wisdom with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have this conversation about Enneagram, about its connection to religion, about mental disorder, and connection to personality. And I guess just to catch everyone up, because people might not know what this Enneagram thing is, could you give us just a brief introduction? Sure. I've always said that if anybody asked me to uh, give them an elevator speech about the Enneagram, I can only do that if I'm trapped between two floors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's really hard to talk about in, in a succinct way. But the Enneagram is probably 4,000 years old. Uh, we know that the desert mothers and desert fathers had it. And important to me is every faith belief has a tradition of using the Enneagram in some way hmm. for thousands of years. And it was an oral tradition until the 1970s when they began to publish about the Enneagram for the first time. And it essentially is a, a wisdom Um, I'm a Christian, so in my language it would be, I I would say that it's a spiritual wisdom tool, not a Christian wisdom tool. Okay. A spiritual wisdom tool that shows us that we have nine ways of seeing the world and nine ways of processing information. And for people who don't know anything about it, um, it seems terribly reductive. Mm -hmm. And it can be. If, if it's used as a parlor game or as cocktail talk, it's a misuse of the Enneagram. Mm. It's uh, bad for uh, the value that the Enneagram can have. And it's a misunderstanding about the gift that it is. Mm-hmm. So essentially the Enneagram is, is a way of describing you in primarily 
the ways that you miss the mark as opposed to the ways that you get things right. In other words, it helps you understand your shadow side. Sure. So when I teach it, I, I'm opposed to all Enneagram tests. I don't think any of them do the job hmm. because your Enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. So people who walk around assigning Enneagram numbers to other people are misbehaving. Oh, Got it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I, I love that you bring this up because I am a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to Enneagram and any kind of, I don't want to be too reductionist in calling it a personality test. Right. But anything in which we're boxing people in, I am a little skeptical. And maybe that's just my misunderstanding in thinking it's used always in this way of assuming people are a certain way because there's some number or with disorder, assuming someone who has a disorder meets symptoms A, B, C, etc. Right. So let me address the first part first. Mm -hmm. And so I don't put people in a box. I show them the box they're already in. Okay. Mm. So um, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, My husband's best friend's wife teaches in the Dallas Independent School District, and she teaches children who are significantly visually impaired. And a doctor, an optician in Dallas, said to her, you know, I could come to a parent meeting, and I could make glasses that show the parents exactly what their children can and can't see. Would that be helpful? And she said, that'd be so great. So he came and did that for, Mm -hmm. I think, 19 children. And Patsy said there wasn't a dry in the place. Mm -hmm. Everybody is all about, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that's what you were seeing. I thought you could see this, or I thought you couldn't see this. So the reality is that what happens with us is that when I walk into a room, I'm a two on the Enneagram, and I see differently than you do, unless you're a two. Right. So Apparently I'm not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. From what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you might be. I don't have any idea how you see. Mm-hmm. But once you learn that there are nine ways of seeing, then rather than increasing judgment about other people, it decreases judgment about mm-hmm. other people because mm-hmm. you're aware that people just don't see what you see. Mm-hmm. So right. there's, no they, there's no way they could respond the way that you're responding. It brings compassion. Right. So I'm working with people r- upstairs right now for three days who are trying to learn more about the Enneagram. And when you dive deep enough, then what you learn is that the Enneagram shows you exactly where your weaknesses are, the things that you don't get right because of your limited way of seeing the world. Mm. And at the very same time, it shows you that you have everything you need inside you to address that Mm. and to be healthier. It's hard to beat that. That's a powerful message of being able to... uh, being able to see that or acknowledge that everyone sees the world through a different lens that I think this is something we all kind of know in the back of our minds but so frequently forget when we have these disconnects or huge disagreements and we just go to cognitive dissonance and can't conceive of how they're seeing something or believing something that seems so wrong right right so um Joe and I've been married a long time my husband Joe and I and he doesn't see what I see so, because we know that we see differently, my expectations for him are not that he will want to have the same response, will have the same response I have, or will want to respond to the response the same way that I do, mm-hmm. right? And so it changes how we collectively 
do life and how we view the world because we're aware that we're actually very different and we all look kind of the same don't we we all we all (laughs) think we're much more alike than we are Mm -hmm. and i think the understanding of the difference is making the world a better place not narrowing who we are or what we're capable of so it's really increasing self-awareness absolutely and that's really interesting because I think we normally do, you know, we often say, hey, let's look at how we're all the same instead of focus on our differences. But I think there's also an element of respecting people's differences I, and validating them. I think so, too. And so a lot of the work I do, I, I'm, uh, I'm all stocked up as a 66-year-old woman. I'm all stocked up on dividing over difference. I'm mm. tired of it. Mm. Mm. So Phyllis Tickle was a friend of mine and a a woman who I would honor any moment I get a chance. And as a church historian, she taught that there are 39 distinctively different, 39,000 distinctively different Christian denominations. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Wow. That's just ridiculous. And and that's about inconsequential difference. Mm. Mm. All dividing, I think, is about inconsequential difference. And so what differentiates us from one another in the system of the Enneagram is nuance. Hmm. It's, um, and it has to do with the fact that we've seen the world the same way since we were five. Right. And I think when we quit expecting the same response from everybody, it eliminates a great deal of expectation, which Anne Lamont says uh, uh, every expectation is resentment waiting to happen. Hmm. <laughs> And so I feel like my work with the Enneagram is really cutting back on resentment in the world mm. because I don't expect you to see life the same way I do. So yeah. when we just met today and when I sat down and started visiting with you and you were um, saying that you're iffy about the Enneagram, mm-hmm. that's not a problem for me at all. Mm. I, and, and when we leave, if you just still think, I just don't think that's got <laughs> any value, I'm okay with that too. I will say you've you've convinced me about the potential power of it when you conceive of it as just an acknowledgement of our differences and the fact that there isn't really a single objective reality. Or maybe you disagree, but I think there isn't a single objective reality. Absolutely not. Everyone has their own. That's right. right. And so you've definitely won me over to its potential in that area. And I I mean, I've been like, I did take the Enneagram the other day because Laura and I were talking (laughs) and I said, I should probably take this thing and not just be skeptical without knowing a single thing about it. So you took a test? I took it. Yeah. I'm very skeptical of the test. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was just a hundred questions, agree or disagree statements. Yeah. So you, you don't know your number. Okay. You want to know your number? You, I'm inviting you right now, anywhere in the country that Uh I'm teaching a know your number workshop. Okay. You come as my guest. Okay. And then at the end of the day, you can say, you know, I'm not quite so skeptical <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I love that. Cool. Yeah, because I, I think that is part of what drove my skepticism is the the comparisons between other tests and like Myers-Briggs. Sure. I think these things, on one hand, I do see that they have a little bit of a power to help us with self-understanding. Mm-hmm. But I think they can be so limiting in assuming there are only... 16 types and that's I think part of my skepticism is the idea that there are only nine types I think there's so much nuance and I think it's a model which can explain but is inherently limited because it's a model well and the Enneagram has all that nuance Mm. it's just that you have to study with somebody who can teach all the nuance an Enneagram master in other words well let me just say this I, I synthesize with the Enneagram so I'm an Enneagram and teacher 
Hmm. So I teach Enneagram and grieving. I teach Enneagram and parenting. Hmm. I teach Enneagram and um, illness, aging, and dying. Right. I, and I teach Enneagram in a recovery community. I taught Enneagram to uh, veterans for a time. So when you're applying it everywhere, then it's it's less and less reductive mm. and more and more inclusive. Yeah, because, I mean, the argument that it can't capture all these aspects were just too complicated. If you can apply it to all these different right. areas, then it can account for that That's right. complication. Yeah. Do you think you could use an example of using your type on the Enneagram and how that has helped you in your life? Sure. So I'm a two on the Enneagram, which means that I read the world with feelings. Okay. And I support feelings with doing something about them. But I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, a good thinker. Thinking is repressed for me. So if we look, we, when I teach the Enneagram, we look at all numbers in terms of the three centers of intelligence, thinking, feeling, and doing. And for all of us, one of the three is dominant, one supports the dominant, and one is repressed. And your lifelong work is to bring up what's repressed, not to push down what's dominant. Hmm. So when I, I walk that. when I walk into a room, I feel other people's feelings, and then I want to do something about it. When my husband walks into a room, he sees what needs to be done. So that's dominant for him. Yes, and so when I read other people's feelings and I want to do something about it, I don't even think about whether or not it's mine to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think about whether or not they need my help. I don't think about whether or not it it, it I even have anything to offer. And most importantly, I don't think about whether or not I'm giving to get something in return. Mm. Not necessarily giving you a casserole to get a casserole, but giving you a casserole so you'll love me and want me, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't still be standing at 66 and a pastor's wife if I was still just feeling and doing and not thinking about what was mine to do. Mm. So Enneagram work taught me that everything's not mine to do, and without some thinking and some good discernment, I'm just going to burn out. I'm just going to give until I don't have anything left to give, and then I'm angry because I've given too much, and, uh, and, and, and. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can see how it can bleed through all different areas of life and how it can sort of guide your what you realize your MO yeah. is in these different areas. How would you think about it in the context of disorder? You talked about it accounting for all that complexity. Um, how does the Enneagram make disorder different for different people? Like, is there are there different kinds of depression because of different people's Enneagrams? All right. So it, this might be a long answer. If I get to talking too long, you'll we just love stop long me. Answers, yeah. Yes. Okay. So um, I want to say this very clearly. Mm. I know a lot about the Enneagram. And I'm really good at this. But I'm a social worker and a basketball coach by history and by profession. And I'm not a doctor. And I don't have any medical training to say what I'm fixing to say. Now, having said that, I'm sure I'm right. (laughs) 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 So, um, but I, I, I don't have credentials for what I'm about to say. Sure. Except life. So uh, I'm going to run through the nine numbers for you first. Yeah, And great. then I'm going to come back and talk about disorders. And then we'll talk about mental illness in a different sect segment, okay? Okay. Because it's different for me sure. than disorders. 
All right, so ones on the Enneagram are people who, when they walk into a room, see what's wrong. And they think that their purpose in the world is to correct things and to make things right because they feel like they're not good enough as they are. So since they don't think they're good, they try to be right or correct. Twos we talked about. I walk in a room and I feel people's feelings and want to be helpful, and then I think I need to do something about that, right? Threes are people, uh, and, and the United States is really a three culture, so we all have some threeness in us. Hmm. But threes are people who are kind of marching to a desire to succeed, to achieve and to sure. get things done right and get them done well. Yeah. Fours on the Enneagram are people who, uh, there are fewer fours than any other number, and they kind of see what's missing instead of what's present. They're kind of always longing for what they don't have, and they're comfortable with melancholy. Mm-hmm. So to just tip my toe in the water of what we're going to continue to talk about. Right. The rest of us think that melancholy is depression. So we offhandedly, we the collective we, not we at the table, we offhandedly walk around saying, I think he's depressed. Mm-hmm. I think she suffers from depression. Mm-hmm. Lots of times those people are fours who are melancholy, who if you talk to them would say, I've never been depressed. Uh-huh. Right? All right. So, and so, fours are the only number on the Enneagram that can bear witness to pain without feeling like they need to fix it. But we don't share our pain with fours because we have decided inaccurately that they're depressed. Hmm. And so we don't want to add to their sadness. So we're not opening up at times to the people who can best listen to us. Interesting. Fives on the Enneagram are people who have a limited amount of energy every day. And you can't store up from day to day. So when you use it all, it's gone. And every encounter that they have with other people costs them energy. Like the toll booth, buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks, every phone call, everything. And when they run out, they're out. So they've learned to intuitively manage their days so that they can get home before they run out of energy. Well, we've labeled them as aloof and withdrawing Mm. and not liking to be with people. And none of that's true. Um, sixes on the Enneagram are uh, in the tradition of Enneagram teaching that I come from, which is through Richard Rohr. Um, people in that tradition believe that half of the people in the world are sixes on the Enneagram. Now that's a big statement because every Enneagram number is associated with uh, a, uh, the seven deadly sins plus two. Okay. And the passion, I would call it as opposed to sin, for sixes is fear. Okay. So if half the world's afraid, wow. and that's what they're trying to manage, mm-hmm. then that explains many things to you, including the recent atmosphere around the political <laughs> election yeah. time, yes. right? Sh- certainly, yeah. And then we could talk about manipulating people with fear. I mean, like, there are a lot of things that we might have time for. Sevens on the Enneagram are people who live with a half range of emotions and I guarantee you and it's the happy half and I guarantee it was a seven who first said it's all good (laughs) (laughs) they reframe everything instantly so everything's good Mm. everything's positive yep eights on the Enneagram are uh, the strongest number on the Enneagram they have the most energy of every number on the Enneagram and in our culture we're very happy with male eights they're strong and decisive, and they get stuff done, and we line up behind them, and it's so great. And you put all those same qualities in a female, and she's a bitch. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. That's how we refer to female AIDS. Uh, Most misunderstood number on the Enneagram is AIDS. Really? Yep. Nines on the Enneagram are uh, laid back and easygoing, and they're mediators. Yeah. So I want to just give you an example with nine and say that in the system of the Enneagram, the best part of you is also the worst part of you. So in a culture where we truncate ourselves and always are trying to get rid of what we don't like, Mm -hmm. you can't do that using Enneagram wisdom. you got to wrap your arm around it and bring it along because if you get rid of it, you're getting rid of part of the best part of you too. So nines, the best part of them is they see two sides to everything. And the worst part of them is they see two sides to everything. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Do you mind if I ask a couple follow-up questions Uh, on a few things you said? Because I am curious... So one thing is you mentioned, and if you don't want to talk about this or you want us to cut this, we definitely can, but you mentioned the election and eights. And, you know, in society we love male eights. And, Laura, you mentioned to me that Donald Trump is an eight. Yeah, I, um, I read that somewhere. I'm not sure that Or that someone had, had said that. Um, so I'm wondering, A, if you, <laughs> if you think that is true, and, B, I'm wondering if you saw there was an experiment done recently where at NYU they reversed the genders of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and they recreated the debates and had an audience watch it and see what they thought. Um, mm. So do you, wow. what do you think? Um, so here's what I decided to do. Um, I had a bad fall and a moderate concussion uh, in late October. Mm. And if you have a moderate concussion, you can't read or watch TV. you got to rest your brain, whatever that means. (laughs) So I spent a lot of time thinking during that time and listened to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. um, One of the things I decided was that I I was going to break my rule of not talking about politics at all, which is a really good rule, (laughs) one that I, I, I really worried about breaking. So let me just say this. I don't care who anybody voted for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I care that you voted. We need to take that responsibility. And if you didn't vote, then stop talking about it. Mm. Stop complaining. If you didn't vote, then vote next time, hmm. which gets you the right to complain mm-hmm. or be happy or whatever comes with that. Um, what I do care about is that I, I think, because my theory is that half of the world is sixes, mm-hmm. I think people are being manipulated. All people are being mm-hmm. manipulated with real and imagined fear. And it works really well. Fear is a, a real good way to get people to do what you want them to do. And I think that's wrong. Sure. I just think it's wrong. Yeah. yeah. And I think it takes advantage of people who are already struggling to feel secure in some way. Right. So we have a whole culture now that is a result of both parties who don't feel secure. And when people don't feel safe, they make bad decisions, not good ones, mm-hmm. generally. I don't think that Trump is an aide. Oh, okay. Hmm. Uh, I can tell you what I think, but I don't know him. Yeah. So I'm breaking another rule if I tell you what number I think he and Clinton are <laughs> yeah. because I don't know them. Yeah. Right. And if I, if I could get them to spend eight hours with me and pick yeah. out their own number, then we'd all three know something. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Trump is a three, mm. and I think uh, Hillary's a one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that doesn't matter at all. 
unless uh, they walk into this wisdom and understand what it tells them and what they might be able to do to enhance their way of making the world a better place. Sure. So what I hear you saying is that the label does, is not helpful. No. Gotcha. And no. it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't even mean anything to me unless you sat through an oral teaching of the Enneagram, which is how it was meant to be, mm-hmm. and you told me what your number is. Then we have something to talk about. Okay. Well, that does kind of lead to the other thing I was wondering, if you don't mind, which is about threes, because you said American culture is very much a three and very success oriented and achievement oriented. And that resonates with me. I I do think American culture is very focused on that. And it's something I've thought about actually in the context of a whole nother model, Mm -hmm. which is the Claire Graves model of psychological development in humans. And it's a really long, like intricate model. And I guess I'm being hypocritical by not giving the elevator pitch when I asked you to, yeah. but just suffice to say it has many different stages. And uh, one is orange that is very um, success and achievement oriented. And uh, this also seems to be where Americans are. But in the Claire Graves model, both individuals and society move through the model and change. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think people can change within the Enneagram, if they can change or if someone is a number their whole life. So the thing that differentiates the Enneagram from the other systems that you've mentioned Mm -hmm. is that it's not static. But you are the same number your whole life. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So the wisdom teaching is that your number is determined part by genetic predisposition and part by environment. I'm kind of standing on that. That's what I was taught, and I still think that. Okay. I have grown in believing that it's more genetic predisposition environment and I have seven grandchildren who range in age from three to eleven and they arrived on the planet uniquely different from one another Hmm. and I'm opposed to using Enneagram with children I don't teach anybody who's not 18 or 16 and I know them Gotcha. <laughs> so um, I, we, we don't need to be assigning numbers to children. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't need to be doing any of that, none of it. And when I teach Enneagram and parenting, I teach the parents how to be better parents. And they want me to tell them what number I think their children are, and I don't do that. Because mm-hmm. they don't know, and I don't know. And I don't want to put something on kids they have to live into, right? Sure. So I, I'm adopted, but I think I'm Italian. So I have to talk with my hands. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what happens in, and I know everybody can't see my hands, but you do whatever you need to do with that. So w- what happens is in, within your number, you can at any moment be healthy, average, unhealthy, or pathological. Okay. And you move up and down this healthy, average, unhealthy all the time. So people who think they're healthy all the time, are pathological <laughs> right nobody is yeah. nobody yeah. gets it right all the time there's right. all this movement mm-hmm. and one of the things that is also true about the enneagram that's very difficult to talk about in a short time but there is an intuitive move in this wisdom where if you're really stressed you kind of fall down through average and mm-hmm. down through unhealthy and then you automatically take on behavior of one other number hmm. And it's behavior that helps you take care of yourself. Like a mm. coping mechanism? Yes. And it's fascinating how it works. Wow. And the lines on the Enneagram mm-hmm. are what connect you 
to that reality. So can, I'm a four. Right. <laughs> yes. And um, it's, yeah, I'm still like working through that of being a four and being okay with that. But um, could you use me as an example of like if I'm in, you know, extreme stress, yep. what that would look like? Sure. So um, there are fewer of you than any other number. And fours special. are the, which is kind of a desire that you have. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and um, fours are uh, very difficult to understand because what you see is never what you get. They're the most complex number on the Enneagram. My husband says, like, I'm an onion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just layer after layer after layer, right? Yeah. So when you're healthy. Mm-hmm. You're very creative, and you're doing something with that creativity. So this is a good example. Your podcast is a good example of that, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And when you're average, you're kind of self-indulgent. You know, you kind of want people to see things like you do. When you're unhealthy, then you you fall into a place of believing that nobody's ever going to get you. Nobody's ever going to understand you. You might as well just give up. And there's a, that's a place that looks almost like depression, hmm. where average people would say, oh, we need to get her some help. And that's right? when you say a lot of people think fours who are often melancholy yep. are depressed yep. or have a problem with right. depression. But then, because this wisdom is wisdom, you tumble, tumble down, and then you intuitively take on behavior of a two. Mm-hmm. So here's the difference in you and me. Mm-hmm. You're a four and I'm a two. So we share a line on the Enneagram. And I take on attributes that you have when I'm secure. Mm. And you take on attributes that I have when you're stressed. Yeah. So you are almost always focused inward. That's not a selfish thing. That's You're focused inward. You get your marching orders from inside yourself. You decide what you think about the world from an inner place instead of an outer place, right? But I'm almost always focused outward. Mm. So when I'm secure and I can take on behavior that you have and I can focus inward, I can write a book on relationships, which Mm -hmm. is what I'm currently doing. That's awesome. And when I'm not, that doesn't come easily Mm -hmm. to me. When you are stressed, you get to be more and more about yourself but then when you take on two energy you reach outside of yourself and you begin to focus outside of yourself and that's the solution Mm -hmm. yeah to your self-indulgence right if you if that didn't happen you'd just get worse yeah so when we're healthy do we start to bring up that repressed yes area yes and the goal always is to bring up what's repressed not to push down what's dominant right always so after we have done this thing that we do sharing a line on the Enneagram for a while, you know, there's, a, there's an Enneagram teaching that is even in the road back to you, but it's not one that I agree with. You know, when you co-author a book, you don't, you don't see eye to eye on everything. Sure, yeah. sure. And um, th- there's an Enneagram teaching in the world that says when you're stressed, then that you go to the bottom of the number that you go to in stress. And when you're secure, you go to the high side of the number that you go to in security. Mm. That's not true. You can learn to go to the high side in both of those numbers, and you can learn to access that behavior before this thing happens that makes it intuitive. Mm. 
Yeah. So you can say to yourself when things aren't going well and you're not connecting well with people, yeah, I'm just too focused inside myself. Mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to switch everything and look outside of me for a while. And I need to see what I can do to connect to other people rather than waiting for them to connect to me, mm-hmm. which is what force have a tendency to do. Maybe I'm being misunderstood because I'm not making myself clear, which is what twos would do. Mm-hmm. That's this much. Would you say um, fours, when they're really unhealthy, um, that's when you see could see some codependency issues? You know, actually the number, on uh, I think, on the Enneagram that is perfectly suited for codependency is twos. Mm. So I, I said to this group I'm teaching yesterday, I said, you know, how many of your twos? And they all raised their hand. And I said, don't you kind of feel like you you have every gift necessary to be codependent? Yeah. And they all said, absolutely. And mm. then I kind of launched into what could possibly be wrong with it then? <laughs> <laughs> and I know everything that's wrong with it. But I, mm-hmm. it, it, And I think fours also are prone to codependency, but, but our motives are different. Mm. I want to be helpful because I want you to want me. Yeah. And your codependency comes in a form of you want to be connected in mm-hmm. ways that are meaningful because you want people to understand you. Yeah. Huh. You want to be known and I want to be loved. Uh-huh. And we do the same things but for different reasons. And that's the determination of your Enneagram number. Hmm. So you think people who are going through, um, working through mental disorder issues or you know depression or yeah. just dealing with that how would they use the Enneagram to help them understand themselves and also to move towards growth? Okay. Well, so I'm going to circle back to the first question. Yeah, great. Because mm-hmm. we, we all went somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Had a great time, and now we're back. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I will repeat. I don't have credentials <laughs> for this. I have wisdom mm. from folks. Mm-hmm. I am convinced that all of the disorders that I'm going to talk about are real and that we have children who are suffering with those disorders and that they need to be treated medically and with therapy. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm as clear as I can be about that. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my four children uh, wouldn't have made it without medication and therapy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm clear. Mm-hmm. But the numbers are exponential in terms of children who are on medication. Yeah. And those are serious medications. Yes. Yeah. So I would like to propose that when people learn the Enneagram, they might be able to consider that maybe children who are being labeled as obsessive compulsive are Enneagram ones. Hmm. And maybe children who are fours on the Enneagram uh, are being diagnosed as bipolar or bipolar type two or bipolar light. And children who are fives on the Enneagram who are introverts uh, I think were at times diagnosed with Asperger's which was one thing now that's on the spectrum and that's a different diagnosis than Asperger's Mm -hmm. once you the spectrum is new talk Mm -hmm. I think culturally yes Mm. right yeah 12 years ago 15 years ago Bipolar light was the thing. Um, so, uh, sevens. Um, I'm just sure that yeah. sevens are being diagnosed as ADHD. Mm-hmm. And I think eights are being labeled as oppositional defiant. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure 
nines are being diagnosed with ADD. I'm mm-hmm. just sure. Yeah. And so the question is, if anything helps us look at things that might be a way of seeing and being in the world as opposed to a disorder, then that's a, that's a, a wisdom that's worth taking a look at. Yeah. Because the medications that go with those disorders are serious. Yes. And the labels have a lasting consequence. Um, I've done a lot of podcasts since the book came out. And I've done a lot of interviews. And unlike you, most skeptics uh, or people who have judged the Enneagram to be wrong or bad uh, try to, to ask this question in a way that I think will suit them. And the question is, what's dangerous about the Enneagram? Mm. And here's my answer. For you to think it's more than it is. Hmm. The Enneagram is a great help, and it's one thing. Mm-hmm. And by itself, it doesn't have much to offer. You put it with other things, and it helps make the world make sense. And so I'm, I'm really concerned about people who know a little bit about the Enneagram, who are telling everybody what their number are, and they've got it all, life all worked out. That's just not true, and it's bad for the Enneagram. And it's, it's, it, it um, distorts what it, the value that it has. Mm. Sure. Right? Yeah. I will say, I mean, speaking as a lot of skeptics are tempted to ask that and get that answer, I can appreciate that everywhere on your site and uh, the things I've read there about the Enneagram, it does mention that and emphasize mm-hmm. that, yeah. that it is just one lens just one. through which to look at the world. Yeah. It's helpful, but it's just one. Sure. What We're, do you? Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to ask about the um, prescriptions and okay. Um, what do you think we can do with any insight we get from the Enneagram and from other types of insights for kids who are being medicated? Let's use it as, an, as an example, ADD and ADHD, because I think it is a real issue. Young children and young boys being prescribed Ritalin and similar drugs. Well, I got a lot to say about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, people, I'm going to start this way. People who say that 60 is the new 40 aren't 60. <laughs> <laughs> I did 40, and I've done 60, <laughs> and that's not true. Okay. <laughs> and p- part of what happens with age is there are, there are parts of you that don't work like they used to work. Like, mm-hmm. we just came down a spiral staircase. Yeah. And y'all got down here way long before I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, at 66, and I'm from a farming and ranching community mm-hmm. in the panhandle of Texas. Nobody was on medication. Mm-hmm. And kids who had trouble focusing were helped to focus with all kinds of ways that had nothing to do with medication. Mm-hmm. And uh, children who were shy and withdrawing and introverted were uh, uh, accepted rather than diagnosed. And there was an opportunity then for them to find a way. Mm -hmm. So uniformity among children in a classroom was not expected when I was a child. It is expected now. Yes. Yeah. And that expectation, I think, is addressed 
particularly by the Enneagram. Because once you hear that taught well, then you know that none of those children are going to behave exactly the same way. So I'm going to, I'm going to get personal for a minute. And um, uh, so my youngest son's a four on the Enneagram, and he was in the Texas Boys Choir uh, from the third grade to the eighth grade. And he went to their school. They only had 40 boys, and they uh, traveled all over the country and mm-hmm. sang. Mm-hmm. My guess is 38 of the 40 were on medication. My son was one of them, and he needed to be. Mm-hmm. But I'm opposed to medication without therapy for children. Mm-hmm. I'm opposed to medication that isn't reviewed on a regular basis. And we did. Uh, we really struggled really struggled with putting him on it we would take him off at times because he wanted off he wouldn't do well in school he wasn't doing well socially we'd try it again try a different one it was a horrific journey not an easy journey a horrific journey um we have the most wonderful therapist he's the most wonderful. I respect him so much, and he's been a therapist for our family extended for 17 years. Mm-hmm. And he said to me over and over and over, as, uh, you know, to get, to get medication, you have to have a diagnosis. And our youngest son had four or five diagnoses. You know, nobody knew, so it was just a different one. Sure. The therapist said over and over and over, you know, we just need to wait till he's 25. 25. Yeah. Let's just wait and see how he is at 25. So I'm a mama mm-hmm. who's worried to death saying, do you know how many years that is from 13? <laughs> do you know how far that is from today? Yeah. And he'd say, yep, but let's just wait. And I'm telling you at 25, everything changed. Wow. In what way? Just not. Life lined up for him. Mm-hmm. He was mature enough to make good decisions. His foreignness wasn't, in my language, wasn't so big for him. Yeah. Uh, paths that he took that didn't work he was mature enough to stop taking a lot of it just had to do with growing up it mm. just he just needed to grow up yeah and it's funny like growing up it seems as if one of the big challenges kids go through especially around that teenager age is surrounding identity and surrounding right. uh, feeling secure in who they are you know having uniqueness and independence fighting for independence but also feeling accepted and grappling with normality and what I can say you've sold me on with something like the Enneagram is that the power to look at a group and not expect uh, uniformity right. and recognize differences and accept people, be compassionate toward yeah. them, uh, I think is is always a good thing. So uh, my husband's a pastor. He's a really good one, though. Like he's the good kind. <laughs> That's good. He thinks everybody's going to heaven, uh, <laughs> that <yeah>. kind of stuff. <laughs> and... Um, uh, he says one of the, the greatest things that the Enneagram taught him, and he's a good preacher, is that he's never going to be able to walk out of church and, have a, and, and be able to say that he had a message that was for everybody. Mm. So, you know, people will come to him and say, that's the best sermon I ever heard. Somebody else will come and say, man, you just off your game today. <laughs> well, that's an Enneagram distinction. Yeah. yeah. So once you know, once you know that, mm-hmm. then you no longer expect everybody in the room to get what you're saying everybody mm. to like what you're saying our children are four different numbers wow and they needed to be treated uniquely different yeah so uh 
my son, who's a seven, could not manage the same chore every day, even if it meant allowance. My other three children did their chores, got their allowance. He got so bored with the same chore every day, he couldn't do it. And when I learned the Enneagram, we gave him a different chore every day, and money started rolling from my pocket to his. (laughs) And it saved all of that angst Mm -hmm. and all of the stuff that goes with, why can't you just do this? Right. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just mind? Yeah. Right? Just that understanding. Yeah, exactly. It's a different way of seeing. Yeah. That's cool. And so if you have four children who are all different numbers, do you think... Enneagram types are genetic or do you think they're how do you think they are term you said a mix of nature and nurture yeah well I think they're I think it's genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. and I can't explain to you why (laughs) I have four that are different numbers and I've taught probably 130 sets of twins Mm -hmm. and they've never been the same number wow so I don't yeah I don't know that's not yeah that's not mine to explain yeah that's my experience that I've had but it does resonate that siblings will be different i mean my sister and i no matter what you believe in if it's the enneagram or anything else i think you could give us any test and we would get different results right right Mm. so so i can't remember i said this before we started recording or after it's real important for me to say Mm. i don't like the test yeah no testing yeah yeah yeah. yeah. there's no shortcut right to learn the enneagram i think that's really helpful it's an oral tradition yeah well, we're running out of time. So oh, man. I know. I want to just, I hope you would be willing to come back. Because I'd I love to come back. Is, yeah. I think we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd love really to cool do that. It's been really cool to hear about uh, the perspective that the Enneagram can give you on people and the idea that you can understand them in a myriad of different ways. Definitely a lot of food for thought with disorder and otherwise. Yeah. I just want to say one more thing. Yeah. Is yeah. there time? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So uh, your Enneagram number would color how you respond to having a child who has a disorder mm. or uh, having a mother who has a disorder or a father. or uh, It would also color uh, how you would deal with pathology and how you would see that. Um, so uh, one of the most important things I ever read for me, uh, three of our children are straight and one is gay. And um, I've, I've got very strong feelings about judgment against the LGBTQ community and yeah. all, all of that. Um, I, I, I've um, been with enough gay and lesbian folks who are trying to come out to their parents and to other people to be able to say without hesitation that it's not a choice. But Andrew Solomon wrote a book, uh, the title of which is Far From the Tree. And he's a great writer, and he's done great work in the world, and he's gay. And early in the book, he says that uh, he's talking about, actually, children who, have, uh, who are deaf and the decision about, of parents whether or not to get a cochlear implant. And the deaf community is not always for that. Uh, most deaf children are born to hearing parents. Right. So there's a whole discussion around whether or not you should do what you should right. do and all that well he was writing a story about that sorry to interject but is the discussion around whether the implant takes away from deaf culture or from well the gifts that you have because yeah. you're deaf that you mm. you know they just have a if you're deaf you have a whole different way of looking at that and it's not considered the liability that it is right. if you're making uh, a decision yeah. for somebody else right gotcha. yeah so in the front of the book which is why i feel perfectly safe talking about it andrew solomon says that he has no doubt that if his mother had known 
as a child that he was gay and that she could do something for him so that he wouldn't be, that she would have done it. And then he goes on to say, it, it wasn't so much that my mother didn't want me to be gay. It's that she couldn't see herself as the mother of a gay child. Mm. And she couldn't fix her problem without involving me, I think is a pretty close quote to what's there. Wow. And I think in Enneagram wisdom, we could learn to be far more compassionate toward and less judgmental about and less afraid of mental illness. So let's talk about that sometime. Yeah. I yes. would love to. I would love to. Yeah. Thank y'all for having Thank me. You Thank so you so much for coming on the Bye, Gail. As always, to stay in touch with us by email and hear about the podcast behind the scenes, you can visit us on redeemingdisorder.com. And special thanks to Hetty, who donated our theme music from her song Shipwrecking Me from her latest album. Be sure to check it out at hettymusic.com. Join us next week, and until then, we hope you feel empowered to start a conversation of your own. Thank you.